Gresham College presents The Gospel of Apartheid by Professor Alec Ryrie. Thank you very much, Richard. Thank you, all of you, for, for being here. So this is the last of this series on extreme Christianity, at which we've looked at extreme versions of the Christian religion from the idealistic and utopian to the nihilistic and genocidal. Today's story is towards the darker end of that spectrum, but I think it is also ultimately an optimistic one, although you will need to be patient to get to that part. Because this is a story of how a particular form of Christianity helped to generate one of the modern world's most notorious evils, but also of how that same form of Christianity made a crucial contribution to bringing it to an end. It is, if you'll forgive the comment, a very Christian story. It's a story of sin and at least partial redemption. But we need to begin with sin. In 1652, the Dutch East India Company established a way station on their route to the East Indies at the site that we call Cape Town. And despite the normal vague pieties about civilising native peoples, this was plainly intended as a refuge from the sea rather than as a foothold on the land. But the land was fertile, the climate was temperate, Dutch farmers began to spread beyond the company's fort to make their own fortunes. And in doing so, they ran up against the region's indigenous inhabitants. Now, the Khoikhoi of southern Africa, the people who were once called the Bushmen, were perhaps more alien to European imperialists of this era than any other whom they encountered. They were nomadic pastoralists, a lifestyle completely incompatible with the newcomer's weird habit of claiming specific patches of land for their exclusive use. The Khoikhoi language, in, in which the, the most numerous consonants are clicks made with the, the tongue, sounded to the Dutch more like hiccups or gurgles or animal noises than, than speech. So th th this click-based language, plus the lack of anything that looked to the Dutch like a Khoikhoi religion, fed the settlers' suspicion that these people were more bestial than human. One Dutch Protestant minister who'd served all around the Indian Ocean declared that the Khoikhoi were the most savage, stupid, and filthy heathens I had ever met. The words filthy and stinking, very widely used by the early settlers, apparently turning the Khoikhoi custom of rubbing their bodies with animal fat into a, a, a symbol of their animality. And that judgment is only vindicated by the abject failure of the few half-hearted early attempts to convert these people to the Christianity of the Dutch Reformed Church. By 1678, a generation into the settlement, a Dutch minister in the colony concluded that this nation is totally opposed to our religion, no matter what means are directed towards them. It's a thoroughly comforting message, because if converting the Khoikhoi was impossible, then there's no need to invest effort in trying. What the Dutch really wanted from these people was for them to disappear, and before long, smallpox ensured that many of them did. Now, elsewhere in the, the burgeoning European empires of the period, missionary despair on the ground like this was being balanced by optimistic newcomers. But at the Cape of Good Hope, European immigration had all but dried up by 1700. A few thousand remaining settlers prospered and multiplied, a tiny outpost of Protestant Europe on the shores of the Southern Ocean. Dutch officials regarded the frontier lifestyle of these Boers, farmers, with increasing contempt. Now, if the cultural gulf with the Khoikhoi had been narrower, we can imagine an alternative history in which the Boers might have intermarried and assimilated, but instead they jealously asserted their distinct identity. And the distinction that they settled on was that they were Christians and they were confident that the natives never could be. What was the Christianity of these settlers? Well, the colony's official Reformed Church, the Dutch Reformed Church, six of whose seven congregations were in Cape Town itself as late as 1795, was unable to provide more than occasional itinerant service to a scattered Boer population. 
But what it could do was set cultural norms. The settlers were a people of the Dutch Bible. And they learned from the Old Testament how God had led his people on an exodus through deep waters to a new land fertile and filled with heathens. And they read these stories through the prism of the Calvinist doctrines that Christians are God's chosen covenanted people and that children born into that covenant belong to it from the moment of their birth. And so they learned that European equals Christian, African equals heathen, and it must always be so. Now, the Cape Colony was eventually taken from the Dutch by the British during the Napoleonic Wars, and in 1820, the first of many waves of British settlers arrived. They joined by now around 43,000 descendants of the 17th century settlers, people who by this stage were less transplanted colonists than an almost indigenous people. Uh, it's only a little anachronistic for us to, to use the label Africana for these people and Afrikaans for their distinctive dialect of Dutch. British conquest was an existential threat to these people's sense of self, not least because, as well as settlers, British rule brought a wave of Protestant missionaries who were determined to attack the Afrikaners' core identity, that sharp division between Christian and heathen. As well as founding their own churches, the British even suborned the Afrikaners' own Dutch Reformed Church, the DRC, the colonial administration began to staff it with British subjects. And in 1829, the DRC obediently decreed that sacraments should be administered equally to all Christians, regardless of race. The last straw, though, was the abolition of slavery throughout the British Empire in 1833. One Africana later recalled her outrage at the shameful and unjust proceedings with reference to the freedom of the slaves. They're being placed on an equal footing with Christians, contrary to the laws of God and the natural distinction of race and religion. Notice the way here that Christian is a tribal identity and race and religion operates as a single word. For this Africana, there was only one solution. We withdrew in order to preserve our doctrines in purity, she said. This was a pilgrimage, the so-called Great Trek of the late 1830s, actually a series of, of movements, which saw around 12,000 Afrikaners leave the Cape Colony and move north and east. The DRC's synod denounced the trek, banned ministers from joining, but the Fortrekkers, undaunted, knew that they were leading their covenanted people from British captivity into the Promised Land. That myth was powerfully reinforced on the 16th of December, 1838, when here we are, a trekker group of some 470 was attacked by a Zulu army of at least 12,000 at the Nkome River. The trekkers had firearms and had the time to circle their wagons, as you see, into an excellent defensive position, but they were still vastly outnumbered and the Zulus had a formidable military reputation. The story goes that the besieged trekkers vowed to commemorate God's mercy in the event that any of them survived. That may or may not be true, but we can certainly believe that they saw God's hand in their victory. The Afrikaners suffered no deaths and only three minor injuries, while the Zulu eventually retreated, leaving 3,000 dead. The carnage gave the battle its name. After this, who could doubt that the Afrikaners were God's chosen people? The commemoration of that vow every 16th of December would become Afrikanerdom's holiest ritual. It proved that, as the Dutch Reformed minister and poet J.D. Du Toit put it in 1909, that the handful of trekkers, the freedom seekers, creators of a people, were another Israel. They were beset by stark naked black hordes following tyrants. But they were delivered by God's hand to the paradise which had providentially been set aside for them. And so the four trekkers carved out independent Africana republics north and east of the Cape Colony, and with them independent Dutch Reformed churches, the whole point of the trek, one of the leaders explained, was not to be forced to sit at table in church with bushmen 
or to accept that baptism and confession destroys the eternal and thus necessary difference between white and black. The DRC establishment back at the Cape, desperate to reunite these separated brethren, was now badly split. The ruling in 1829 that non-white converts should have equal church membership had in practice bolstered the Africana assumption that it was better not to convert non-whites to Christianity at all. The solution was proposed in 1857. Anyway, by this man, Andrew Murray, who proposed the the solution in 1857 to to, to this problem. Andrew Andrew Murray is deeply committed to, to missionary work, and he sponsors a revolution which declared that racially integrated congregations were desirable wherever possible, but recognizing that that requirement was an obstacle to mission, it gave permission for congregations to be segregated. This had two results. One was indeed a surge in Dutch Reformed missionary work and the foundation of new sister Dutch Reformed churches for mixed race and African converts. And the second was that the mother church, the white DRC, had returned to its original sin. Meanwhile, the independent Afrikaner republics flourished and the Afrikaner population exploded. Amazing increase from some 43,000 in 1820 to something like 700,000 in 1900. But by then, British rule was catching up with them. Fatally, the Afrikaner republics turned out to be sitting on vast deposits of diamonds and gold. And that's the fundamental cause of the, the Boer War, a South African War of, of 1899 to 1902. It is not to defend the Africana Republic's own racial tyranny to point out that this war is one of the ugliest episodes in the history of British imperialism. Um, It's a war fought against the entire Africana population using what the leader of the opposition in Britain called methods of barbarism. Huge tracts of land were emptied of people who were interned in concentration camps, a new invention, Britain's gift to the 20th century. 27,000 imprisoned Afrikaners and unknown numbers of non-white people died. The British imperial war machine ground out its victory in the end. But the Afrikaners did not learn to love their conquerors. Instead, in Calvinist mode, they interpreted their defeat as martyrdom, a calling to further defiant faithfulness. And hence the formation in 1914 of the National Party, the NP, a political vehicle for asserting Africana identity. And the National Party was very close to being the Dutch Reformed Church under another guise. It became routine to joke that the only difference between the NP and the DRC was the day of the week. The the NP's most important leader, Daniel F. Milan, was also an ordained Dutch Reformed minister. And he argued that preserving the Africana nation wasn't merely self-defense, it was a religious duty. He said, we hold this nationhood as our due, for it was given us by the architect of the universe. The history of the Africana reveals a will and determination which makes one feel that Africanadom is not the work of men, but the creation of God. For now, this defiance was contained. After their bruising victory in 1902, the British created a new Union of South Africa in 1910, in which their own baby steps towards a non-racial state were brought to an end, and the Afrikaners' rigid racial hierarchy was accepted. The governing United Party described this as the Christian trusteeship of the European race over the natives. The rights of non-whites to vote, which were already severely limited, were progressively curtailed further. In 1913, a sweeping Natives Land Act reserved the vast bulk of the country's best farmland and its cities exclusively for white ownership. South Africa's British establishment claimed that this was a society evolving towards equality under the law, but for those on the law's receiving end, most progress was in the other direction. Even the English-speaking churches, which, unlike the DRC, remained formally committed to racial inclusion, were in practice segregated by language as a proxy for race, and they remained firmly under white missionary control. You didn't need to be a visionary in the early 20th century to suspect that this racial tyranny was not wholly stable. But how were white South Africans going to defend it 
especially against the rising bogeyman of communism. For Anglophone whites, the answer tended to be imperial liberalism, aspiring to a non-racial capitalist democracy under the rule of law, knowing that good order and gradual change are the ways to get there, and happy to justify today's injustice on the basis of aspiration to something better tomorrow or maybe the day after. For Afrikaners, there was an obvious alternative to this milk and water ideology. The age's other rising ideology, fascism, is one of racism, nationalism, violence, and manly peasant virtues. The, the, the ideological fit with Afrikanerdom only became closer once Nazi Germany began confronting the Afrikaners' hated British conquerors. A series of fascistic Afrikaner movements culminated in the emergence in 1938 of the Ose the Oxwagon Sentinel. This is a folk reenactment society with paramilitary ambitions whose stated aims are to protect the religious, cultural, and material concerns of the Afrikaner. When Afrikaners were dragged unwillingly into Britain's war in 1939, they flocked to join the OB, which by mid-1940 numbered some 200,000 people. Its manifesto that year demanded an Afrikaans-speaking republic in which various racial questions would be settled, um, and it openly supported a German victory and began an active campaign of sabotage. But this is where the story becomes interesting, because the OB's bid for Afrikanerdom's soul failed. It was blocked by the VNP, by the Afrikaner National Party. The National Party's leadership was committed to creating a white supremacist Afrikaner republic, but they were not Nazis. This lugubrious distinction between two kinds of racism matters profoundly, because at its heart, was the NP's commitment to its Christian identity. The OB described its nationalism in terms of race and blood. And this caused an immediate problem, because talk of the white race lumped Afrikaners and their British oppressors in together. And worse, emphasizing blood rather than covenant changed what being an Afrikaner meant. In the OB's hands, Africana history was, was retold not as a sacred narrative of divine protection and redemptive suffering, but as a story of triumphalist violence. It didn't celebrate defeats as martyrdoms. It looked for triumphant victories. To the NP, it all looked pagan and at least as foreign as British rule. Fascism and Nazism used a vague Christian identity as a, as a sort of cultural dog whistle. Afrikaner nationalism looked for a state founded, as the Afrikaner Brotherhood put it in 1941, on the eternal legal principles of the word of God and committed to freedom of conscience. It also wanted whites-only citizenship. So this is not liberal democracy, but not, it's not fascist totalitarianism either. And so as fascism crumbled worldwide in the wake of the Second World War, the OB collapsed too and classic Africana nationalism took its place. It was now something without parallel anywhere else in the world. An ideology which openly and defiantly defended racism in principle as well as in practice. Apartheid was often compared rather loosely to fascism, but this isn't really true except in the sense that different boots feel the same to the person being kicked. Apartheid was a form not of fascism, but of Calvinism. And that fact is central both to its creation and its dissolution. Now, apartheid was, of course, far more about money and power and fear than it ever was about religion. Almost all of South Africa's power and wealth were controlled by its white minority. That status quo suited that minority rather well. But human societies don't act on bold calculations of self-interest. Generally, we need to believe that what we're doing is right or natural or serves some higher purpose. I mean, ideologies can be bent and stretched, but they're not infinitely malleable, and if they eventually snap, the cause that they're holding together can fall apart. And that, I think, is, is the story which I, I'm going to tell just now. The theology of apartheid was based on the apparently innocuous principle that human diversity is God's will. 
the Old Testament implies that the primary unit of that diversity is the nation. And the Jewish nation's history implies that nationhood is defined by descent and by way of life, not by territory or political independence. And so it's easy to conclude that nations are created by God and must be preserved inviolate to his glory. And so the Afrikaner nation, a conquered minority in a very diverse country, came to have a horror of mixing, blending their God-given distinctiveness into a soulless, cosmopolitan, modernist soup. This principle even stymied the achievement of a great Afrikaner hope, the full reunion of the sundered branches of the Dutch Reformed Church. The, the notorious 1857 ruling, remember, didn't actually require racial segregation. And the, the DRC back at the Cape retained a handful of coloured members. This is the, is, the, is the terminology for people of, of mixed racial descent in South Africa. Um, and indeed, two coloured congregations. If that church were to fully unite with the, the Transvaal and Orange Free State, Dutch Reformed churches, that united body would be governed by a synod which included one elder from each of those two coloured congregations. For the other, the exclusively white branches of the DRC, this was intolerable. One Transvaal delegate insisted that if there were even one coloured among a thousand delegates, he would vote against unification, and the scheme fell. Now, that Transvaal's comment certainly arose from profound racial loathing and fear, but there's also a rationale. The argument was that coloured and black Christians should belong to their own national churches, not to the Afrikaners' church. They were another nation. They had their own divinely created way of life. Mixing them into the DRC would contaminate both nations with each other. And so instead, during the 1920s and 1930s, the DRC poured its effort into building up its sister churches, the segregated non-white Dutch Reformed churches, in the belief that each nation could that way, in parallel, attain the fullness of its own distinctive divine calling. And from around 1929, DRC writers on this subject began to apply a newly coined word to this project, apartheid. This early church-led vision of apartheid was idealistic. In 1931, the Orange Free States Dutch Reformed Church called for black churches to be established on their own terrain, separated and apart, as part of a community that would live apart from, yet where possible, in cooperation with the white community. And it emphasized that neither blacks living amongst whites nor whites living amongst blacks could expect to be treated as equals although they could expect some rights. In 1935, the, the, the federal DRC, the body that was formed when full union turned out to be impossible, um, insisted that each nation has a right to be itself and to try to develop and uplift itself. And it supported social differentiation and spiritual and cultural segregation to the benefit of both sections. It was a policy... DRC theologians argued, which would suit everyone. Everyone that is apart from the Anglophone capitalist elites with their project to mash South Africa's God-given diversity of nations into bland mongrel homogeneity. They argued that this separation was morally superior to the status quo of simple discrimination and exploitation. One theorist cited the Afrikaners' own sufferings at the hands of the British to argue that, if I bring this one up, that the Boer nation can therefore understand the sufferings of the Bantu, black South Africans. It's the same imperialism and capitalism of having them believe that the foreign is better than what is their own, which seeks to destroy their tribal life. How this might be done in practice was sketched out by a group of theologians at Stellenbosch University, led by Professor Gustav Gerdner. Gerdner emphasized that Separation shouldn't mean inferiority. He was particularly keen on equality in education in order to foster what he called a healthy Christian national life view amongst all races. And this was completely consistent with his other priority, which is a ban on interracial marriage that would preserve all of South Africa's many nations in their individual purities. It was possible to say with a straight face 
that this was not about racism. The test came in 1948. The National Party ran on the emerging policy of apartheid in that year's election, facing, of course, an almost exclusively white electorate. It lost the popular vote, took 38% against 49% for the governing United Party, figures which had been virtually unchanged since the previous election, but constituency boundaries had been redrawn, and the NP's success in thinly populated rural seats delivered it and a small allied party a slender parliamentary majority, and it would remain in power without a break until 1994. The theologians were nervous. Would apartheid actually be constructed so as to permit what Gerdner called really equivalent and autonomous development? One of Gerdner's associates warned in 1947 that apartheid could only be justified if it was inspired by Christian love and not by racial egotism or a feeling of racial superiority. In 1950, Gerdner chaired a DRC conference on the native question, which insisted that non-whites should be permitted to own substantial amounts of land. He also argued against the use of black labor in the white-run economy, and in the meantime, black laborers ought to be treated with the respect due to an equal, separate people. And those views were reflected in the report of the Tomlinson Commission in 1956. This was a review of racial policy set up by the NP government. And it recommended that South Africa be partitioned. The white-ruled state, it said, should relinquish enough land to form a series of viable independent states. And most blacks ought to become citizens of these new states. Decolonization was gathering pace across the continent at this point. The Tomlinson Report is suggesting a kind of internal decolonization, leaving a rump white South Africa alongside a series of equal new neighbours. Now, if you squint hard, you can almost imagine that this could have been just. There were contemporary examples from Austria-Hungary to India where partition had come to seem like the least bad way of dealing with irreparably divided societies. It was possible for apartheid's theorists honestly to believe that this was the only way for all of South Africa's nations truly to be themselves. Just two problems with that fantasy. First of all, partition could only have been just if it was mutually agreed by all the peoples concerned, which is tricky because the underlying process of the entire project was to deny non-whites any real power. As Manas Butelezi, a Lutheran bishop in Soweto, patiently explained in 1977, if we came together and then agreed that the situation is that we should separate, then separate development would have a moral basis. But now only one section says we must separate and dictates how. Secondly, neither the government nor the white population as a whole was ever willing to contemplate the sacrifices that the Tomlinson Commission called for. Not renouncing the use of cheap labour, certainly not sacrificing vast amounts of land and resource to set up viable new states. The NP's chief political ideologue, Hendrik Favort, roundly rejected the commission and did his best to purge Gerdner's idealists from the faculty at Stellenbosch. Any talk of separate development, he warned, had to take into account what he called the innate hereditary factors, which ensured that blacks' developments would inevitably and always lag behind whites. So apartheid, as it was actually implemented, was a kind of parody of the idealistic separate development that the theorists had spoken of. Interracial marriages were banned in 1949, all other interracial sexual contact the following year. Non-whites were banned from owning land in most of South Africa. Houses owned freehold by black families for generations were bulldozed, and entire communities forcibly relocated to new purpose-built townships, such as Johannesburg's Southwest Townships, whose initials gave us the word Soweto. The townships deliberately kept at a safe distance from the cities. All schools for non-whites were nationalised and redesigned in order to train unambitious, politically quiescent manual labourers. Even in 1959, when Vavort, now Prime Minister, invoked the language of separation to propose the creation of so-called Bantustans, or homelands, 
carved out of South Africa for the black population. This was a mockery of the notion of partition as it had been floated some years earlier. The homelands, as they were eventually erected, constituted some 13% of South Africa's land area, not including any of the best farmland or any of the cities. Almost all of the large and growing majority of South Africa's population who were black were now supposed to be citizens of these reservations. The millions who worked in the white-run economy were reclassified as foreign migrant workers, thus stripped of many of their remaining rights and made liable to arbitrary deportation. The homelands were puppet states funded and controlled by the apartheid regime. Now, the point of this is not that Vervoort betrayed some ideal vision of what apartheid could have been. That vision was both contradictory in its conception and utterly impossible to put into practice. Apartheid's theologians weren't the National Party's dupes. They were its enablers. They provided a vital idealistic veil to a policy of naked racial self-interest. The DRC had, at least for the time being, legitimized apartheid. South Africa's English-speaking Protestant churches, the, the, the white-led English-speaking churches, never signed up to apartheid, regularly denounced it, but generally preferred issuing resolutions to, for example, choosing to pay their black and white employees equally for equal work. The few who spoke out more clearly, like the English missionary Trevor Huddleston, were usually removed from the country fairly quickly. This mood of quiescent opposition hardened considerably in 1960, after the Sharpeville massacre, when police opened fire on a mostly female crowd of demonstrators, killing 69 people, most of them shot in the back. The regime, instead of investigating the atrocity, imposed a nationwide state of emergency and arrested thousands <coughs> of opposition activists. This was enough to awaken the, the sleepiest of consciences. The Anglican Archbishop of Cape Town called for the DRC to be thrown out of the World Council of Churches. The World Council of Churches didn't throw him out. It organized a formal consultation at Cotslow in Johannesburg in December of 1960. And this was a remarkable event. The representatives of one of the smaller offshoots of the Dutch Reformed Church who attended kept themselves separate from the others throughout and were rumored to be feeding news to Prime Minister Vervoort. But the main DRC's delegates mingled freely with those of the other churches participating, a group that included 18 non-white participants and one woman. Over a week, they discovered sufficient mutual understanding that on the last day, the Anglican Archbishop made an uncharacteristically gracious apology for misjudging his DRC colleagues. And the consultation issued a final communique, agreed to by everybody apart from that one small <coughs> offshoot. This denounced the ban on mixed marriage, it denounced the system of migrant labor, and it insisted that every adult, regardless of race, had the right to own land wherever he is domiciled and to participate in the government of his country. It may not exactly be a rainbow nation, but it was a huge shift. And for those Afrikaners who hadn't been in the room that week, it was a betrayal. Vervoort denounced the communique. The DRC's Transvaal Synod, which had sent most of its office holders to, 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 to Cottesloe to take part, rejected the conclusions that they came back with. It withdrew in indignation from the World Council of Churches and threw everybody who'd been involved in the process out of office, including the acting moderator of the Synod, Bayers Naudet. The DRC, which had once seen itself as a proud outpost of the Protestant world, now felt both besieged and betrayed. And nobody shows this more spectacularly than Naudet, for whom Cottesloe triggered nothing less than a conversion. Liberated from office, he agitated against apartheid and the DRC's role in it. In 1963, he founded a Christian institute to foment anti-apartheid views and he built links with the English-speaking churches and then with black South African Christians, a constituency who'd generally been ignored up to this point. The threat of all this was, was profound. In 1968, the, the then Prime Minister, John Vorster, warned the Christian Institute that anybody aiming to do the kind of thing here in South Africa that Martin Luther King did in America should cut it out. Cut it out immediately, for the cloak you carry will not protect you. 
This was not an idle threat. Nowday was closely watched. In 1975, he was briefly imprisoned and in 1977 was placed under strict incommunicado house arrest. In retrospect, the regime should have silenced him earlier. He had galvanized the English-speaking churches from a nominal to earnest anti-apartheid activism, and he turned their struggle into a genuinely multiracial one. He'd also shown where the DRC's own Calvinist conscience might lead it. His work led directly to the foundation of the South African Council of Churches in 1968, and to that body's decision in 1976 to elect its first black president, a 45-year-old rising star in the Anglican church named Desmond Tutu, who argued that the anti-apartheid cause was a struggle for white as well as black liberation, and who helped lead the campaigns of mass civil disobedience that challenged the apartheid state in the 1980s. Between 1986 and 1990, South Africa was under a continuous state of emergency. Tens of thousands were arrested, thousands killed, President P.W. Berta talked of South Africa's facing a total onslaught. It was clear that the apartheid state was no longer even faintly stable. Most of the world assumed that it would eventually fall, that it would go down fighting, and that it would take the country into chaos with it. But instead, between 1989 and 1994, a new president, F.W. de Klerk, gambled that there was another way. His success was fundamentally down to the vision and astuteness of his counterparts in the African National Congress, the ANC. But it is only fair to point out that this was the apartheid state's initiative. The National Party was not forced to the negotiating table. Its military advisers were clear that they had the situation in hand, that they could hold out for a long struggle. If anything, the regime had won the bloody confrontations in the townships during the later 1980s. It could have fought on for many more years, and holding on to the bitter end would have made a certain cold-blooded sense. Fear of retribution or even extermination in the event that the white minority lost its grip on power was very real. The rider of a tiger may not have a viable long-term strategy, but still clings on. But instead, the apartheid state guessed that a deal could be made. The collapse of the Soviet empire, the defeat of Cuban-backed guerrillas in Angola, made the old bogeyman of communism seem less frightening. That moment, the, 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 the Soviet collapse, de Klerk said, was a God-sent opportunity. That's not a throwaway phrase from an earnest Calvinist. And if the ANC's liberal capitalist wing was in the ascendant, so too was the National Party's. Its old autarkic nationalism was in retreat in the face of 1980s neoliberalism. But those secular themes miss a crucial part of the story. One survey of Africana business leaders found that between 1968 and 1988, almost half of them ceased believing that humanity's division into nations was an expression of God's will. This is not because they were secularized. As late as 2001, 90% of Afrikaners told pollsters that they considered religion more important than politics or money, compared to 40% of English-speaking South Africans, of English-speaking white South Africans. Afrikanerdom was not losing its faith. It was losing its moral self-confidence. A senior intelligence officer who would later hold secret talks with Nelson Mandela recalled that in the mid-1980s, nowhere was the situation out of hand, but it was clear that politically and morally, politically and morally, we were losing our grip. In 1979, the Irish journalist Conor Cruz O'Brien visited an Africana university and described his hosts as good men who had inherited certainties which no longer seemed certain and who were now groping their way in considerable intellectual and moral discomfort. The crucible of that discomfort was the Dutch Reformed Church itself. During the 1970s, one of the, the, the DRC's several small offshoots began to draw attention to apartheid's brutality and criticize the main DRC's subservience to the state. Reformed churches in Germany and Switzerland and the Netherlands were becoming increasingly critical of their South African brethren. The DRC could dismiss the World Council of Churches as a gaggle of crypto-Marxist heretics, but other Calvinists were harder to ignore. In 1974, the DRC produced a full-scale report on racial issues, which argued 
Once again, that it was legitimate for a country to decide to regulate its interpeople relationships on the basis of separate development. The, the, the layers of jargon and euphemism here are becoming thick. The tone of this was moderate. South Africa's church, as it said, had begun an experiment with segregation in 1857, that, that notorious ruling, and the churches had been blessed with prosperity ever since, so apartheid was a justifiable policy in principle, but the report also deplored some specific features of it, such as the way that migrant labour and residential segregation destroyed families. And it even lamented the fact that social contact between different groups of people is restricted to the minimum. That's the draft that was sent to the DRC's Synod. The Synod debating it found itself badly split. A vocal minority wanted to push the critique further, but the majority's instinct was still to circle the wagons. And the crux issue became mixed marriage. The report argued, everybody was against it, the question is why. The report argued that mixed marriage was undesirable because different cultural backgrounds can impede the happiness and full development of a Christian marriage. But for DRC traditionalists, this is what the draft text said, for DRC traditionalists in the Synod, this completely missed the point. And the clause, as it was eventually adopted, added language stating that mixed marriages weren't just undesirable but impermissible because they destroy a nation's God-given diversity and identity. This is about racial duty. It's not about marriage counselling. But sceptical voices are not silenced. The decisive challenge, though, comes from an unexpected direction, from the Dutch Reformed Mission Church. This is the DRC's daughter church for South Africa's so-called coloured population, the mixed-race population a church which had long been quietly apolitical. But leading the charge now was Alan Bosak, a young coloured minister recently returned from study abroad. In 1978, in the wake of the Soweto uprising, he persuaded the Mission Church's Synod to declare that apartheid was a sin and to join the South African Council of Churches under Tutu's leadership. Bosak addressed the council itself the following year and he helped to spur it to adopt a policy of civil disobedience. Then in 1982, the World Alliance of Reformed Churches, the Calvinist international body, met in Canada, in Ottawa. The World Alliance had criticised apartheid before, but Boisak now forces the pace. He led nine other South African delegates in publicly refusing to take communion in the opening service while white DRC representatives were present. The World Alliance was impressed, and that later in that meeting it formally declared that apartheid is a sin that the moral and theological justification of it is a travesty of the gospel and in its persistent disobedience to the word of God is a theological heresy. It declared that a fundamental question of the faith was at stake, it suspended the white DRC, and it elected Bursak, then aged only 36, as its new president. Spurred by this, back in South Africa, the Dutch Reformed Mission Church drew up a new confession of faith. That's not something that is done lightly in a Reformed church. Uh, this text condemned the forced separation of people on the grounds of race and colour and asserted unity and reconciliation as fundamental Christian values. And the, the, the DRMC in 1986 elected Bursak as its youngest ever moderator. Now for the white body that still thought of itself as the mother DRC, this is a genuine crisis. Being thrown out of the World Alliance of Reformed Churches fostered soul-searching as well as anger, a defiant motion to withdraw from the World Alliance anyway was put before the, the, the DRC Synod and defeated. Previously sound men started to show signs of doubt. <coughs> Johann Heinz, who was one of the, the church's most prominent theologians, now denied that apartheid was God's will, and he came out in favour of mixed marriage. His colleague Willy Jonker demanded that we distance ourselves from every form of racism, not because of Ottawa, but because racism is a sin. But instead, the DRC's Synod in 1982 kicked it into the long grass, resolved to set up yet another commission to produce yet another report. The report took four years to produce, but it was apparently not long enough because the draft put before the next Synod in 1986, titled Church and Society, was chaotic and full of points on which the authors had not been able to agree. Even so... 
It denied that forced separations of people or a ban on interracial marriage could be justified. And it even stated that the application of apartheid as a political and social system by which human dignity is adversely affected and whereby one particular group is detrimentally suppressed by another cannot be accepted. Now, notice that measured reference to the application of apartheid. The report denounced racism as an evil, but only called apartheid an error, which could have been intended honorably and done differently. Even so, the change is astonishing. It's crossed a theological Rubicon here. Hesitantly, ungraciously, but voluntarily. Apartheid's hardliners recognized that their cause was lost, and in 1987, they formed the breakaway Afrikaans Protestant Church. This is a refuge for a few tens of thousands of bitter enders. But Afrikanerdom's conscience had moved on. Johan Heinz, who was elected as the DRC's moderator in 1986, now took charge of the process. He had the report sent back for further revisions. The final version that came out in 1989 is less a statement of doctrine and more a confession of error. He persuaded the government to permit some anti-apartheid protests from late 1989 onwards. And in 1990, Heinz bluntly declared on behalf of the DRC that apartheid as such was a sin. Like most of his colleagues, his conversion was late, but in earnest. Uh, unlike most of them, he sealed it with his blood. He was shot and killed by an unknown assassin in 1994 while he was playing cards at home with his wife and grandchildren, one of apartheid's last martyrs. Meanwhile, in December 1989, President de Klerk called for a conference of all South Africa's churches to address the emerging new world, which eventually took place a year later in November 1990, and it included, amongst others, the long-silenced Bears Nowday. But the show was stolen by Johann Heinz's ally, Willy Jonker. Four pages into his lecture to the conference, Jonker pulled out a handwritten scrap of paper and told the startled delegates, I confess before you and the Lord, not only my own sin and guilt and my personal responsibility for the political, social, economical, and structural wrongs that have been done to many of you, and the results of which you and our whole community are still suffering from. But vicariously, I dare also to do that in the name of the DR Church, of which I'm a member, and for the Afrikaans people as a whole. Now, the DRC's awkward, crabbed journey to repentance hadn't prepared anyone for an unscripted moment like this. Desmond Tutu now interrupted proceedings from the floor and said, I believe that I certainly stand under pressure of God's Holy Spirit to say that when confession is made, then those of us who have been wronged must say, we forgive you. The confession is not cheaply made, and the response is not cheaply made. The delegates present applauded, the exchange made headlines around the world, and the DRC's formal delegates, who were surprised by this sudden intervention as everybody else, rushed to declare that they endorsed what had been said on their behalf. And everybody lived happily ever after. Of course, church politics doesn't work that way. A good many DRC members, including the former president, P.W. Berta, objected to being told that they were penitent. There was talk of further schism. And on the other side, the, the, the non-white Dutch Reformed churches who understood the fine gradations of Calvinist language felt that Jonker's statement was suspiciously vague and wanted to know exactly what he was confessing to. Tutu himself was criticised quite harshly for offering too quick and blithe an absolution. Progress since then has been halting. The DRC's synod in 1994 finally abandoned the attempt to produce a theological statement on racial matters, and it also invited an outsider to address it, a lifelong Methodist of discreet but fervent faith, the newly elected President Nelson Mandela. In 1998, the DRC was readmitted to the World Alliance of Reformed Churches, but the DRC has been slow to embrace the view that apartheid was inherently evil rather than an innocent idea wickedly implemented. The church's formal submission to the Post-Apartheid Truth and Reconciliation Commission merely claimed that apartheid was allowed to degenerate into injustice. And that stubborn insistence has long hampered its reconciliation with the, the non-white DRCs, which had, had long since merged into a single body. So plainly, the DRC's repentance has neither been perfect nor consistently gracious. 
But repentance of any kind is not so common in human affairs that I think it should pass unremarked. The, the DRC's sanctification of racial prejudice was intrinsic to apartheid. It did it believing that it had good intentions, and it seems to me that that failure of moral insight only deepens its culpability. But Reformed Protestantism's restless tendency to revisit and question its own orthodoxies meant that support for apartheid was not graven in stone. So if this story has a lesson for the wider history of religious extremism, I suggest it's ultimately a hopeful one. Religious traditions can be bigger than the evils that they commit. They carry enough resource within themselves to be able to correct and transcend their mistakes, given enough time, enough pressure, and a modicum of heroism. Reformed Protestants in particular, perhaps, can dig deep holes, but they can also dig themselves out and can even help to save a nation in the process. And perhaps a soul or two. Um, one participant in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission recalled a private conversation in the corridor outside with one witness, uh, a white member of one of the state's death squads. During the 1980s, this man had carried out sickening atrocities. I did all these things, he explained to, to, to the, the man he was speaking to off the record, um, hence his anonymity. I did all these things because of my Christian faith. He believed that he was fighting a just war against communism. You have to understand, I really believed that I was being a good Christian. But he changed his mind. Some of the murders that he'd seen committed went beyond what his code could accept as honourable. And so he decided, ultimately, to confess his former crimes, to tell survivors and families as much as he could about what had happened, and to denounce his former colleagues. His interviewer asked him why he'd changed his mind. He looked me straight in the eyes and said, you see, I'm a devout Christian. I was changed by my profound Christian faith. Now, there are layers of self-deception, self-justification, and wishful thinking in that statement. But there may also be some truth. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.